First Lieutenant Jefferson DeBlanc of VMF-112 is pretty sure he's not going to make it back home to Henderson Field. His Wildcat is burning fuel at an unexpectedly high rate, but he's the flight leader of eight Wildcats escorting SBDs on a mission up the slot, and he's not abandoning the mission. It's 31 January 1943. Although the Marines don't realize it yet, the battle for Guadalcanal has been won, but the fight in the Solomons will continue as attested to by the Japanese fighters pitching in to engage. DeBlanc figures as long as he's going for a swim, he might as well take some zeros with him. Welcome to the Aviation Medals of Honor podcast. As a boy growing up in rural Louisiana in the 1920s, young Jefferson DeBlanc watched as a biplane makes a forced landing in a cow pasture near his home. Already fascinated with aviation, he runs to the scene and is rewarded by a peek inside the cockpit. He would call it a defining moment in his life and would cement his already budding desire to fly. Years later, Another makeshift runway in a cow pasture would play another defining role in his life. Fighter One on Guadalcanal. DeBlanc's path to becoming a Marine fighter pilot starts in 1939 while a college student at Southwestern Louisiana Institute, where he was a beneficiary of a new government program called the Civilian Pilot Training Program. The Civilian Pilot Training Program's purpose was to help a struggling general aviation industry by funding flight training for up to 20,000 college students per year. Colleges would run the 72-hour ground school portion, with 35 to 50 hours of flight instruction given at local flying schools. It's a pretty good deal for the participants and for the general aviation industry. Left unsaid was that it would also benefit the U.S. military, who would have a trained pool of pilots if war were to come. Well, after Pearl Harbor, that was no longer left unsaid. The Civilian Pilot Training Program was renamed the War Training Service and its participants required to enter the military if eligible. Future Mercury 7 astronaut John Glenn, previous podcast subject Joe Foss, and top American ace Richard Bong were just a few of its notable graduates. As a civilian program, it didn't discriminate like the armed forces at the time, and there were women graduates and instructors. Many of the original Tuskegee Airmen would also come from the Civilian Pilot Training Program. By the time the program has ended in 1944, over 435,000 people have gone through. It was highly successful in both saving the general aviation industry and providing a pool of pilots for war service. As an early beneficiary, DeBlanc earns his civilian pilot license through the program on February 8, 1940. The next year, with three years of college completed, he follows his older brother into the Navy, enlisting in July of 1941. He does well in his training, selects for and progresses through the carrier pipeline to earn his wings in June of 1942. He was trained to fly single-engine aircraft off a carrier, but the Navy drops a bombshell on his class of graduating pilots. The Navy's short on patrol pilots, and his class of prospective fighter pilots is told they are going to fly the big Navy seaplanes. 
It's something every military member becomes intimately aware of during their career. That the needs of the service always come first. But that doesn't mean the news is any easier to take. The block is devastated, but there is another option, as a few of the top students are offered a chance to transfer to the Marine Corps. The Blanc jumps at the chance. On July 2nd, 1942, he is commissioned a second lieutenant in the United States Marine Corps. He heads to a training group in San Diego, where he gets checked out in Wildcats on September 28, 1942. That doesn't mean he's proficient, as getting checked out in an airplane in those early days of World War II meant little more than, here's how you start it, now take it out for a spin, and try not to kill yourself. On October 2nd, he's assigned to VMF-112, and by October 10th, they're sailing for Guadalcanal. DeBlanc heads off to war with just a handful of hours in the Wildcat, having never fired its guns. DeBlanc and 112 arrive in New Caledonia, south of Guadalcanal, soon after the defeat of the Japanese October Offensive. To recap that fight, which I covered in Part 1 of the Joe Foss Podcast, the Japanese had managed to put ashore a large number of troops following a bold daylight convoy run supported by a battleship bombardment of Henderson. But the ground offensive fails to break through the marine lines and the Japanese army is pushed back into the jungle with heavy losses. At sea, the opposing navies had met at the Battle of the Eastern Solomons, a victory for the Japanese in that they had sunk the carrier USS Hornet and forced the U.S. Navy fleet to retire. But the cost had been high for the Japanese, with many experienced aircrew lost. In the air over Henderson, the October fighting had been the heaviest of the campaign. The Marines held, but are bloodied and battered and seek to reinforce in early November. DeBlanc's VMF-112 is part of that November reinforcement of Cactus. DeBlanc himself arrives on Guadalcanal with the second echelon of VMF-112 on 10 November. He flies a local orientation flight later that day, then it's go time. The fate of Guadalcanal once again hangs in the balance as the naval battle of Guadalcanal is about to kick off. I already covered that battle in part 2 of Joe Foss's episode, so I'll skip the details. Just know that DeBlanc shows up right as the large aerial battles kick off in the run-up to that battle. His first combat will be the day after he arrives on Guadalcanal, 11 November. He's part of a mixed force of cactus fighters from the veteran VMF-121 and new guys from his squadron, VMF-112, that intercept Betty bombers on their way to Henderson. His division of four knocks down two Bettys, but the division leader, an experienced flight lead from VMF-121, is killed in a mid-air collision with another Wildcat. Mid-airs were, and are, always a possibility when you have a lot of airplanes in a piece of sky. It's a big sky, but that big piece of sky narrows as two separate aircraft converge on a target whether it's a ground or an air target. Think of the effective targeting zone as a cone. The closer you get to the target, the more narrow that cone gets. It's called a SIMO run and dramatically increases the chances of midair. Not only is the cone getting narrower, but the pilots are laser focused on solving for a firing solution and lookout suffers. You could easily have two aircraft belly up and blind to each other as they converge on the same target from different angles. Unless someone observes the dangerous situation and calls out a warning, you're going to have two airplanes in close proximity. Even so, most of the time the big sky little airplane theory works out, 
resulting in a couple of spook pilots. But not always, as DeBlanc witnesses in his first combat. Anyway, as discussed last episode, November 11th had been a rough day for the Cactus Defenders, with the Blancs Fight League being one of six Wildcat pilots killed that day. They'll get their revenge the next day, though. DeBlanc is airborne again on the 12th, part of the flight of Wildcats and P-39s that again intercepted Bettys, this time on a low-level torpedo attack on Admiral Kelly Turner's Task Force 67 transports, unloading reinforcements off Lunga Point in Guadalcanal. The fight takes place about 50 feet off the water, in and out of the AAA thrown up by Turner's defending fleet. Despite his inexperience, DeBlanc is credited with two of the 11 Bettys shot down that day, plus another probable. His first victories will be his last for a while, though, as both sides catch their breath following the intense action of the naval battle Guadalcanal. Although not apparent at the time, the survival phase for the defenders of Guadalcanal was over. Command of the Allied forces on Guadalcanal turns over to the U.S. Army's Major General Alexander Patch, as General Vandegrift and his worn-out 1st Marine Division are relieved in mid-December. Patch would have 50,000 troops under his command, and the fight to secure Guadalcanal turned into a mostly Army affair, at least on the ground. However, the air component, the Cactus Air Force, would continue to be a Marine command, consisting mainly of Marine aircraft. Henderson Field was designated a Marine Corps Air Base in mid-November, demonstrating a long-term commitment to the Solomons for Marine Air and beginning a major expansion and improvement effort. The Marines weren't the only ones upping their commitment to the Solomons. The Armored Air Forces brought in B-17s and B-26s to Henderson, as well as adding three more fighter squadrons. The Navy's Black Cats, PBY Catalinas, were out. The arrival of the night attack specialists would make the nights much more dangerous for Japanese shipping. Allied aircraft got into the fight as well, with Lockheed Hudson's of the Royal New Zealand Air Force providing reconnaissance assets to calm air cactus. The Japanese aren't idle during this period. They knew the significance of Guadalcanal in the overall war effort. Remember from last episode they called it, quote, the fork in the road which leads to victory, for them or for us. Unquote. and they want to continue the fight. They realize any chance of victory requires air superiority over Guadalcanal and reinforce the veteran 11th Air Fleet. Imperial Japanese Army Aviation enters the fight for the first time when its 6th Air Division is moved into theater. Its veteran pilots are a welcome addition and are in stark contrast to the low-quality replacement pilots coming to the 11th Air Fleet from training bases in Japan. Construction begins on an airfield at Munda Point on New Georgia Island, just 150 miles northwest of Guadalcanal, which will finally provide some relief from the grueling eight-hour missions down from Mabul, but is discovered and attacked repeatedly. Most of the air combat in December and into the new year will be shifted from the vicinity of Henderson Field to the vicinity of Munda as the Allies go on the offensive. It's in support of a strike on Munda on December 18th that the Blanc bags his next victim, a Pete biplane fighter. DeBlanc gets a little over-eager with a second Pete and is forced to break off after collecting a few holes in his aircraft. He has learned the same lesson Joe Foss had a few weeks earlier, that while slow, the Pete is highly maneuverable and its rear gunner can pack an unexpected sting. 
Unlike Joe, he makes it back to Henderson. Despite the action around Munda, it's a fairly quiet time overall in the air campaign, and 112 heads off to Australia for its mid-tour R&R in January. They return for their second six-week combat tour on 28 January. They make it back just in time for the final phase of the Guadalcanal campaign, the Japanese evacuation off the island. The pieces that had been put in place back in late December, when the Japanese had made the decision to abandon Guadalcanal, are now in motion in the form of increased air and sea activity. The Allies take notice, but interpret it as another attempt to take Guadalcanal and are on high alert. With an air raid expected, de Blanc has the pre-dawn launch the morning of January 29th. He's not impressed with the beat-up Wildcat assigned to him, and turns out for good reason. He takes off into no-moon blackness, making it up to about 6,000 feet before his engine fails and he's headed back down. DeBlanc debates jumping, but decides to take his chances with a water landing, something he's starting to regret as he gets lower and lower. Henderson would have been blacked out, as well as any ships in the area. So there's no ambient lighting, no moon, and the overcast is blotting out any help from the stars. It's a pitch black descent, strictly on the instruments. Luckily for him, the ships anchored off Guadalcanal start maneuvering to avoid the inbound air raid. The phosphorescent sea life churned up by their wakes provides a perfect lit-up runway for DeBlanc to safely ditch. He's picked up by a destroyer and is back on Guadalcanal a few hours later. Two days later, on January 31, 1943, DeBlanc is leading a flight of eight Wildcats covering SBD bombers on a mission to attack shipping in the vicinity of Munda. Two of his wildcats aboard as they head up the slot, and DeBlanc is not happy. On top of the aborts, he's got a developing fuel issue. Either his external tank is not transferring, or his aircraft is burning a lot more fuel than expected. Either way, he's going to be tight on fuel getting back to Henderson. He could have aborted as well, but continues with the mission after alerting search and rescue that he might need a pickup. The trip up the slot has been uneventful and the dive bombers roll in on the targets, a couple of destroyers accompanying a cargo ship. Overhead, the Wildcats provide cover. Coming off target, the SBDs are jumped by several of the familiar Pete biplane float fighters. DeBlanc rolls in, flaming two on one pass, before someone calls out, Zeros. About ten Zeros pitch into the fight. At low altitude following his engagement with the Pete's, DeBlanc climbs into the mix. He gains a probable and a confirmed kill, his third for the day, in a climbing head-on pass with the Zeros. I'll let him tell the story of the rest of the fight. Quote, This started one of the wildest dogfights I had ever been in. To this day, I cannot tell how many Zeros came down on us. Targets were everywhere. Staff Sergeant Felton and I flew a defensive scissor weave covering each other's tail. Staff Sergeant Felton is DeBlanc's wingman, and the defensive scissor weave he's talking about is the Thatch Weave, a tactic derived by Navy fighter pilot and BF-3 commanding officer Lieutenant Commander Jimmy Thatch. In the fall of 1941, the Navy was seeing reports on the impressive performance of the Zero filtering out of China. With war with Japan looking imminent, Thatch was trying to brainstorm how to counter the Zero with the Wildcats. 
What he came up with was to move his wingman up from a standard chase position to an abeam position, just outside the turning radius of the Wildcat, so several hundred feet abeam. If threatened from behind, the Wildcats would turn into each other and be able to sweep each other's tails. Thatch validates it in a mock combat with BF3 fight leader and future Medal of Honor winner Butch O'Hare, then puts his weave into practice during the Battle of Midway. Outnumbered by the superior zeros, he takes his flight into his defensive weave, scoring four kills for a single loss. Following that success, the tactic sees widespread adoption throughout the Navy. The Guadalcanal Marines pick up on the tactic as well. That's what DeBlanc is talking about when he says they flew a defensive scissor weave. So they're in this defensive weave when, quote, on one turn, he, that's DeBlanc's wingman, pulled too wide, and in the first few seconds, which seemed like a lifetime, I watched his fighter take a hit in the engine as he banked across the nose of my fighter, leaving the fight with a huge trail of black smoke, unquote. Now DeBlanc is in trouble. He's lost the protective cover of his wingman and has a zero latched on his tail. He's saved as another wildcat roars in on a head-to-head pass, passing just feet above DeBlanc's cockpit and forcing the zero to maneuver off his tail. DeBlanc said, quote, This probably saved my life. For ten seconds, the air was clear of fighters. My fighter had taken a few arrows during the dogfight, and I remembered seeing a zero plunging in flames from above. It was a kill by Lieutenant Moss, who was up on high cover. The dive bombers had all assembled for the return trip and were preparing to take a heading back home. I noticed two zeros closing in from behind me as I started a climb towards a position that would take me above the dive bombers, which already were fast disappearing in the distance. A glance at my fuel gauge shocked me. I had used up quite a bit of fuel during the dogfight. The fighter escort mission was completed with the safe retirement of the dive bombers from the immediate combat area. If I stopped to engage Zeros, my chances of returning safely would be in question because I would probably run out of gas. With total darkness for the return trip, I kept thinking about the night water landing, something I did not want to consider again so soon. I decided to challenge the Zeros and take my chances, and at the same time draw them away from the dive bombers. If I ran out of fuel returning home after the fight, I would bail out this time. No more water landings on the gauges for me. The coming action would be in full view of the rear gunners and the dive bombers returning to Guadalcanal, and, unknown to me at this time, in full view of a missionary on the island of Vela de Vela. I would hear about this later. I switched on the last set of guns, the one I usually kept for the return flight home, as added insurance. I've always maintained that if you can't hit them with four guns, you certainly won't hit with six of them. But I was in an all-or-nothing position. Those Japanese pilots were aggressive. Both fighters came at me as I turned head-on into them. Again, I was in the better firing position. A climbing head-on run is better than a diving head-on run. The Zero pilot had a trim problem diving on me as he picked up speed, while I was slowing down as I climbed towards him. I had six fifties against his two 7.7mm machine guns. I assumed my bullets would reach him before he could hit me. Besides, he couldn't use his slow, low-muzzle-velocity cannons until he had me boresighted. Remember, we talked about the weakness of the Zero's armor in it back in the John Smith episode. My fighter became more stable as I slowed in the climb, 
and the Japanese pilots started shooting out of range. The tracers looked like Roman candles and a pair of railroad tracks coming at me. We closed in less than a heartbeat and I fired. The Zero caught fire immediately but kept coming straight at me. He was going to ram. The firing slowed my fighter about 15 knots or more and my controls became sluggish. This was intensely frightening. Could I maneuver out of his way? Frantically, I held the trigger down and the Zero blew up in a flash of fire. Pieces flew everywhere and some struck my fighter. I struggled to regain control from an almost stalled position after flying through the debris. I banked sharply to get on the tail of the other Zero as he flashed by, but he had already pulled up high above me and completed his turn. He came in on me on a high side run. Lieutenant Colonel Bow always claimed that if a Zero gets on your tail, don't worry because he will open fire with the twin 7.7mm machine guns to line you up, then cease firing and open up with his twin 20mm slow firing cannons. You have plenty of time to skid out of the way. Even if they hit you, the armored plate behind you will take the shot. This man had convinced us long ago that the Zero was not invincible, but could be dealt with head on or on your tail. He said, dogfight them, for they are paper kites. We knew from intelligence sources that if we were outmaneuvered by a Zero, we could always go into a vertical dive at 200 knots, roll, and turn to the right. The Zero could not follow through for any gun lead on you because the Zero was not built for those stresses. So why not dogfight them? Our armored plate and bulletproof front glass gave us an added edge in head-on or tail direction shots. The Zero pilot coming down on me was too eager for the kill and did not judge my speed correctly. With his altitude advantage and his closing rate of speed too great and increasing during the diving run, he stood a good chance of overshooting me, a factor he realized too late. I chopped the throttle, skidded, and dropped my flaps. The Wildcat was down to a few knots above stalling speed. The Zero pilot, closing too fast, sailed by and overshot me, at the same time fishtailing his aircraft to stay on my tail. This he failed to do. I could still see his face as we locked eyes in that instant. He froze on the controls and flew straight ahead of me without making any attempt to get away. Shot him down with one short burst. It is odd how this action is still so clear in my mind today. I have often wondered if the Zero Pilot knew that others were on my tail, and, by flying straight, they would shoot me down after I got him. I had made the near-fatal error of not clearing my tail before I shot this Japanese pilot down. Unknown to me, there were others behind me, already in firing position and making a run on me. With a quick glance, I looked at the watch strapped on the inside of my wrist and noticed the time approaching 1,800 hours. Night was rising fast from the earth below. In the next instant, I felt the watch fly off my wrist. The instrument panel erupted in flames caused by a 20mm shell that came over my left shoulder. The gasoline from the ruptured primer on the instrument panel had a good fire going in the cockpit, aided by the floor auxiliary fuel tank. In the next second, I caught another burst in the engine. It flamed and lost power. In my frantic effort to get out of the line of fire, I caught a glimpse of the Zero banking for another run on me. 
In the meantime, the damaged canopy worked loose from its railings and with a loud bang was lost in the slipstream. With the aircraft falling apart, I unbuckled my safety belt and jumped for the trailing edge of the left wing. Unquote. There's a lot going on in the less than five minutes it took from first engaging the Peets to finally being shot down himself. You can see the differences in attitudes from January 1943 from where the Marines were back in August of 1942. It was no longer, if you're one-on-one with a zero, you're outnumbered. But the attitudes had changed to Lieutenant Colonel Bowers' admonishment, dogfight them, they're paper kites. The Blanc used the strengths of the Wildcat that we talked about before, its firepower and ruggedness, to become the first Marine to score five victories on a single mission. But he won't be celebrating back at Cactus. He's in his parachute, wounded, and drifts down into the waters of the Vela Gulf between enemy-held Kalamangara and Vela La Bella Islands. It takes him a while, but after six hours, DeBlanc makes it to shore on Kalamangara. He's deep in enemy territory at this point, with no good options. Although he doesn't know it, he's got one thing going in his favor. The surviving members of his flight spotted his wingmans and his parachutes, and the Marines notified the Coast Watcher network of two pilots down in the vicinity of Colin Magara. The Blanc spends the next three days in the jungle, living off coconuts and his survival rations. On the fourth day, he wakes up to find himself surrounded by some natives. They aren't outright hostile, and he's well taken care of, but the bamboo cage and guards leave no doubt that he's their captive and not their guest. His stay doesn't last long, though, as another group of islanders shows up shortly after. After some discussion, a bag of rice is exchanged. The Blanc doesn't understand the native language, but it's apparent his life has just been traded for a 10-pound bag of rice. He's lucky. The group he's been traded to is working for the Coast Washers. There were some pilots that were sold to the Japanese and never seen again. The new group transports him on a dangerous two-day paddle up to Bella de Bella, where he links up with Coast Watchers Lieutenant Harry Jocelyn and Lieutenant John Keenan of the Royal Australian Navy, as well as its wingman Sassardin Peloton on 6 February. They'll both have several days with the Coast Watchers as a rescue pickup is worked out. While Lieutenant DeBlanc was undergoing his ordeal behind enemy lines, the Japanese Navy had been busy in the waters around Guadalcanal but the increased naval activity wasn't another build-up to an offensive. The Japanese had conceded defeat and were evacuating. In one last master performance of the Tokyo Express, this time running in reverse, Japanese destroyers evacuate 10,652 men from the island on the nights of 1, 4, and 7 February. Six months to the day after the 1st Marine Division hit the beaches, the battle is over although it takes a few days for the defenders to realize the Japanese are truly gone. On the 9th of February, the island is declared secure. The struggle for Guadalcanal was over. The battle had changed the face of the war in the Pacific. It had been an unexpectedly bold strike by the Americans, something the Japanese hadn't expected them to be able to do until 1943, or even later. No one launches an offensive when they're in a material inferior position. After all, the Marines didn't call it Operation Shoestring without reason. But that's just what Admiral King did in pushing Nimitz into the attack. 
With the American war machine still ramping up, Guadalcanal wasn't a foregone conclusion, as later battles in the Pacific would be. It was a close-run thing that could have gone either way, even as late as November. For much of the campaign, the Japanese held an advantage in sea power. Their naval forces were superbly trained, especially in night gunnery, and they had the advantage of surface groups that for the most part had trained together for an extended period of time. The American naval forces were also cobbled together groups of whatever ships were available. The Americans' one advantage of radar was largely squandered, at least early on, by unfamiliar commanders fighting in the close confines of Iron Bottom Sound. While the Japanese mostly came out of the large naval engagements on top tactically, strategically they failed. Why? Well, the most obvious factor was the SBD dive bombers and Avenger torpedo bombers of the Cactus Air Force. They basically formed a 200-mile exclusion zone around Guadalcanal in which the Japanese Navy could not operate in the daytime. They could dash in and dash out at night, but couldn't linger, and thus could not stay to follow up any tactical successes. More importantly, they couldn't run large transports down the slot and were forced to rely on the fast destroyers of the Tokyo Express to move men and supplies to the island. In the end, that just wasn't enough to build and sustain a force that could dislodge the 1st Marine Division. The Japanese lost the logistics battle. But while we can compare the respective fleets, ground forces, or aviation assets, in the end that's not the whole story. It was the people who carried the day at Guadalcanal. While the individual Japanese fighting man certainly was not lacking in courage and competence, their leadership failed to recognize the same in the Allies. People like Red Mike Edson standing up in the face of withering fire on Bloody Ridge, rallying his men to the fight. The many coast watchers on their lonely vigil on enemy-occupied islands. Major Jack Cram taking off on what was surely a suicide run against the Japanese fleet in his PBY. Admiral Callahan and his cruisers, who stood their ground against a superior battleship force, being decimated in the process, but stopping a repeat of the shelling of Henderson. Finally, they hadn't counted on Admiral Halsey, who just didn't know when he was beaten. Down to one carrier with a hole in his flight deck? No problem. Get it into the fight. While you're at it, strip its offensive air power and send it forward to Henderson. Not enough? Strip the battleship protection as well. Get them into the fight. Halsey punched back with everything he had while the Japanese high command held back. They failed to mass their forces. They failed to build forward airfields. Meanwhile, they're planning surrender ceremonies. I just don't think the Japanese prepared for the ferocious defense of the island, at sea, over land, and in the air, and were surprised each time they were stopped. By the time they realized the fight they were in, it was too late and they had lost their last best chance for a decisive victory in the Pacific War. Japanese losses during the course of the Guadalcanal campaign were heavy. The Japanese Navy lost 24 warships in the naval battles around Guadalcanal, with the Americans losing 25, about equal, and with the Americans losing more and heavier ships, it could be looked at as a positive for the Japanese Navy. The problem is that during the course of the Guadalcanal campaign, Japan commissioned one light cruiser and seven destroyers. The Americans commissioned one fleet and one light carrier, one battleship, four light cruisers, and 62 destroyers. 
The Americans could afford their losses. The Japanese couldn't. On the ground, Japanese losses total about 25,600, with as many as 80% of those lost to disease or starvation, against Allied ground losses of 1,769. Taken together, the losses at sea and on the ground weren't insignificant. However, neither spelled disaster for the overall Japanese war effort. In the air, it was a different story. The fighting broke the back of Japanese naval aviation, something from which it would never recover. During the most intense period of fighting, from August 7th to November 15th, Japanese losses totaled 241 aircraft. A critical part of Japanese losses were that most of their air crew were lost as well. One source shows 104 of 187 Zero pilots involved in the fighting were killed or captured during that period. The Americans, while suffering similar losses in airframes over the course of the entire campaign, about 615 U.S. to 682 Japanese, didn't have the same aircrew loss rate. Even if they did, they could afford it as training bases back home were putting out ever-increasing numbers of pilots who were increasingly better trained. On the other hand, by December of 1942, the Japanese replacement pilots were showing up with one-third of the experience of the pilots they were replacing. This trend would continue as the war continued on, ultimately resulting in kamikaze attacks by pilots barely qualified to take off and land. Japanese naval aviation would never recover from its losses of Guadalcanal. The bottom line was with the Japanese loss of Guadalcanal, the tide had turned in the Pacific. The Japanese would never again get the chance to fight the Allies on roughly even terms, where either side could potentially prevail and would spend the rest of the war on the defensive. That's the big picture, but probably not much concern to Lieutenant LeBlanc, who was still with the Coast Watchers behind enemy lines when the fighting on Guadalcanal ends. It would be several days after the evacuation of Guadalcanal, on 12 February, that LeBlanc and Staff Sergeant Felton are picked up by a PBY flying boat and returned to Henderson. Flying cover for the PBY is a flight of F-4U Corsairs from VMF-124. It's the combat introduction for the Corsair, which would soon replace the Wildcat as the Marines' frontline fighter. Indeed, shortly after DeBlanc rejoins his squadron, VMF-112 is sent back to the rear air to transition to the Corsair. Following their transition to the new aircraft, 112 and DeBlanc return to Henderson for one last combat rotation. It's mostly ground attack missions up the slot, and DeBlanc fails to add to his total of eight kills. Upon return to the States in mid-1943, DeBlanc instructs in the Corsair before returning to combat in early 1945 with BMF-422, flying missions in the Marshalls and later Okinawa, where he scores his ninth and final kill over a kamikaze. DeBlanc was flying attack missions into southern Japan when the war suddenly ends. With the war over, DeBlanc leaves active duty, although he remained in the reserves. On December 6, 1946, he's ordered to report to the White House. His wartime recommendation for the Medal of Honor has finally been approved. President Truman presents him his medal in a White House ceremony. His citation read, For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty, as leader of a section of six fighter planes in Marine Fighting Squadron 112, 
during area operations against enemy Japanese forces off Kalamagara Island in the Solomons Group, 31 January 1943. Taking off with his section as escort for a strike force of dive bombers and torpedo planes ordered to attack Japanese surface vessels, First Lieutenant DeBlanc led his flight directly to the target area where, at 14,000 feet, our strike force encountered a large number of Japanese Zeros protecting the enemy surface craft. In company with other fighters, First Lieutenant DeBlanc instantly engaged the hostile planes and aggressively countered the repeated attempts to drive off our bombers, persevering in his efforts to protect the diving planes and waging fierce combat until picking up a call for assistance from the dive bombers under attack by enemy float planes at 1,000 feet. He broke off his engagement with the Zeros, plunged into the formation of float planes, and disrupted the savage attack, enabling our dive bombers and torpedo planes to complete their runs on the Japanese surface disposition and to withdraw without further incident. Although his escort mission was fulfilled upon the safe retirement of the bombers, First Lieutenant LeBlanc courageously remained on the scene despite a rapidly diminishing fuel supply and, boldly challenging the enemy's superior number of float planes, fought a valiant battle against terrific odds, seizing the tactical advantage and striking repeatedly to destroy three of the hostile aircraft and disperse the remainder. Prepared to maneuver his damaged plane back to base, he had climbed aloft and set his course when he discovered two Zeros closing in behind. Undaunted, he opened fire and blasted both Zeros from the sky in a short and bitterly fought action, which resulted in such hopeless damage to his plane that he was forced to bail out at a perilously low altitude atop the trees on enemy-held Kalamangara. A gallant officer, a superb airman, and an indomitable fighter, First Lieutenant DeBlanc had rendered decisive assistance during a critical stage of operations, and his unwavering fortitude in the face of overwhelming opposition reflects the highest credit put on himself and adds new luster to the traditions of the United States Naval Service. DeBlanc would say in receiving the medal that the details of his citation weren't quite accurate, but one does not correct the President of the United States. Indeed, in a History Channel episode of Dogfights, DeBlanc describes the action as being against enemy Oscars, not Zeros. It's available on YouTube, and the interview of DeBlanc is highly entertaining. He's quite the character, even in his 90s. But while the details may be a bit off, the facts were DeBlanc courageously pressed into a fight with a Navy airplane against large odds to become the first Marine to down five aircraft on a single mission. The Wildcat would cease production with Grumman in June of 1943 in order to make way for its replacement, the F-6F Hellcat. However, as the Wildcat was better suited for operations off the smaller escort carriers than the Hellcat or Corsair, it would continue in production with General Motors as the FM-1 and the FM-2 until the end of the war. Although used mainly in a ground support role, the Wildcat was still a dangerous opponent. It achieved its last kill on 5 August 1945 and ended the war with an impressive 6.9 to 1 kill ratio in U.S. service. It wasn't the fastest or most maneuverable, but it was a forgiving, rugged fighter, a hard-hitting and stable gun platform that proved to be the match of the Nimble Zero when it mattered in the skies over Guadalcanal. The Grumman Ironworks would go on to produce fighters for the Navy for the next 50 years, from the Wildcat and the Hellcat to the last of the Navy's piston engine fighters, the Tiger Cat and the Bear Cat, to the early Jets, the F9F Panther and Cougar. The Grumman Cats would be a fixture on U.S. carriers for decades. 
The last of the Grumman Cats were the F-14 Tomcat, which retired from U.S. Navy service in 2006. DeBlanco returned to school, ending up with several degrees and a career as an educator, at one point teaching middle school math. I wonder how many of his students knew what their teacher did in his previous life. How many sat there in his class thinking of how boring old Mr. DeBlanc was, never knowing in his younger days, back when he was just a 21-year-old Marine, he had won his nation's highest award for bravery, and his life was traded for one sack of rice. Sever five.